Thanks, man. You guys love this guy? Aren't we so blessed to have him? Hey, real quick shout out too to the student section. We got a bunch of students hanging with us today. It's great to see them in here. Um, no heckling. Two of them are mine. So, um, hey, and thanks to all of you who have let us know how you put last week's sermon into practice. At the end of last week's message, I challenged you to provide a meal for someone, to serve a meal to someone. And I love having the stories flood in and how you are serving coworkers and strangers and people in need and on and on and on the stories go. So that's great. And listen, if you have not yet been able to provide a meal or to, to take a meal to someone, do something like that, that's okay. Um, you can still do that. <laughs> like it doesn't end today. You can do that anytime. So if you weren't able to do that yet, uh, you can still do that. Uh, if you weren't here with us last week, we encourage you to go back, watch last week's message. That whole thing will make a lot more sense. Um, and don't just skip to the end to be like, well, what was the last 30 seconds? And then I'll know. Um, like watch the thing and then you'll... You'll know. But thanks to all of you who have put it into practice. Because that's really what it's about. Not just coming and listening, but actually changing and being transformed. In fact, transformation can be a beautiful thing to witness, right? Um, Like watching the night transform into the day. Most days I get to watch that transformation. I love watching the sun burst forth on the horizon and the sky erupt in a blaze of color and illumine the world. I love watching winter transform into spring. I like that more than I like watching summer and fall transition towards winter. I love watching the burst of colors come alive, the buds on trees and flowers and the the pinks and the reds and the whites and the greens just erupt back as the world awakens from its winter slumber and hibernation. Transformation can be a beautiful thing to witness. And today, we are going to take a look at a transformative moment in Jesus' life. We begin chapter 17 in Quest 52. This is the book we're using in our year-long pursuit of Jesus. This is a supplement to the Bible, not a replacement of it. In fact, it's a guide to help us dig into the Bible in a meaningful way so that we can get to know Jesus better. Not just to get to know more about him, but actually get to know him. So today, we begin chapter 17. And if you don't yet have a copy of that book, if you're new or newer to us, you can pick up a discounted copy in the lobby after the service. But today we begin chapter 17, and we're going to explore a transformative moment for the life of Jesus and a few of his disciples. As we answer this question, is Jesus divine? Is Jesus God? Was Jesus just a good man, just a religious leader from a couple thousand years ago? Was he just a great teacher, an example of how we should live, an example of how to be a really nice guy? Was he a great leader or was he something, someone so much more? Well, to answer that question, let's jump into Matthew chapter 17 to find out. Now, a little context on this. Jesus had been teaching his disciples that he would eventually be killed that he would pretty soon be killed by the religious leaders and that he'd be sacrificed, but that he would come back to life after three days. They did not quite make it to that 
he will come back to life part because they did not have a framework in their mind and their perspective to handle a Messiah who would die in the first place or who would suffer. So they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying and they certainly did not like what he was saying. So in that context, six days later, Jesus took Peter and the two brothers, James and John, and he led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched, Jesus' appearance was transformed so that his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. Now this word transformed, historically, this is referred to as the transfiguration. But we don't often use the word transfigure in our day-to-day language. Transfigure just means to be changed in appearance, to become more radiant. So Jesus here becomes radiant like the sun at noonday, bright as white light, one that you could not even really look upon. Well, suddenly as that was happening, Moses and Elijah appeared and began talking with Jesus. Peter exclaimed, Lord, It's wonderful for us to be here. He was filled with wonder at that wondrous moment. He was awestruck. But Peter, not often short for words, even though he didn't really know what to say, as Mark shares in his gospel. He says, this is wonderful. If you want, I will make three shelters as memorials. One for you, Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he spoke, a bright cloud overshadowed them. We don't often think of clouds as being bright, but this was a bright, radiant cloud that cast shadow on them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Hold on to that phrase. We'll come back to that. Well, the disciples were terrified and they fell face down on the ground. Of course they did. Enter into this story. Put yourself there in that mountaintop moment. You're hanging out with your friend Jesus. And suddenly, he begins shining like the sunshine. So bright that you can't even gaze upon him. And then, a couple guys who've been dead an awfully long time, pretty big names in the lineage of Jewish leaders, religious leaders, they show up and begin chatting it up with Jesus. And then a cloud shows up, and the voice of God booms forth from that cloud. This is my son. He's dearly loved. I'm pleased in him. Listen. Now, God does not often throughout Scripture show up in that way, to speak in that way. God speaks in a variety of ways throughout the Word, but not often in that way. So when he does show up and he speaks in that way, it is a super special moment. So here... You have Peter, James, and John, and all of this going on, and they are terrified because they don't, and you would be too. I would be. My buddy is shining. Dead guys show up out of nowhere to start chatting with my friend. The cloud forms and the voice of God speaks. My face is on the ground. Like, what is going on? So they're terrified in this moment because they just don't know what to do with it. And then Jesus came over and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. A little late for that. But don't be afraid. And when they looked up, Moses and Elijah were gone, and they saw only Jesus. So in that moment, Peter realized, oh, no need to build the memorial for the other two. Mo and Elijah, they hadn't stayed long. But you know he's still thinking, Jesus, let's build that memorial for you. Let's build the tent. Let's build the tabernacle. Let's camp out here a while. Because in a moment like that, 
when you have this mountaintop spiritual high, that God is doing something among you, right there with you, and it's shining onto you. When you are encountering God in that kind of moment, you don't want those moments to end. Because in moments like that, all the problems, all the worries of life just seem to fade away. Like those are the spots we want to stay. We have a really great church service. Like on Easter, when we saw 26 people get baptized that weekend, I didn't want to leave. Like that was a high for me. I'm like, man, let's just keep this. Can we just stick around and keep praising? Can we just sit in the beauty of this moment? Because the rest of life just kind of pales in comparison. But you can't stay there. So Jesus knew he could not stay in that moment. The disciples realized they really couldn't stay in that moment. It was a beautiful moment. It was a small glimpse of the eternal moment to come when we stand forever in the splendor of God's glory in heaven. But they weren't there yet. So they had to go back down the mountain. So as they went back down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, they didn't quite grasp that last statement because, again, they didn't like the thought of a dead Messiah who would have to come back to life. But in this moment, like many others, Jesus says, by the way, stay hush. Don't tell anybody about it. Now, sometimes when Jesus says that, people go out they tell people anyway. But in this moment, the guys are thinking, yeah, nobody's going to believe us anyway. Like, Jesus became shiny like the sun. Dead guys show up. They start talking the voice of God. Nobody else will understand this. They don't have a frame of reference for this. They won't know what to do with it. They can't comprehend. We don't even fully comprehend what just happened. So Jesus says, yeah, you don't fully understand this, but it will make sense to you one day. So just tuck that one in your back pocket. When I raise from the grave, it'll make more sense to you. So then his disciples asked him, why did the teachers of religious law insist that Elijah must return before the Messiah comes? Now, this was common conversation that the religious leaders had taught that before the Messiah arrives, Elijah or one like Elijah must show up and pave the way for him. So they're asking a couple things. Why do they say that that must happen? And has that happened? Because we believe you're the Messiah But have we seen the one like Elijah? I mean, we just saw Elijah. Is this what it's like? Jesus, help us understand what's going on with this. So Jesus replied to him, Elijah indeed is coming first to get everything ready. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, but he was not recognized and they chose to abuse him. And in the same way, hold on to that, in the same way, they will also make the Son of Man suffer. Then the disciples realized that Jesus was talking about John the baptizer. John the baptizer had come like Elijah. He was the one who was baptizing in the Jordan when Jesus showed up. He was the one who said, look, the Lamb of God, look, one who is even greater. He is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. John was one who pointed the way and paved the way for Jesus to show up. He was the one like Elijah. But again, the disciples did not fully understand all that Jesus had said, that Jesus must suffer like John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been beheaded. He'd been killed and murdered. So what would happen to Jesus? Well, Jesus, once again, is referring to his imminent death. But 
The disciples did not understand that, and they certainly did not like it. The disciples were like all the other Jewish people at that time. They were expecting a Messiah who would act very differently than the way Jesus acted. They were expecting a Messiah who would do things different than what Jesus was doing because they had incorrect assumptions about the Messiah. The Messiah is the promised one of God who would come and lead his people to freedom, to rescue them, and to lead them on. And so people at that time, the Jewish people at that time, were expecting a Messiah who was going to be a not necessarily a religious leader, but a political leader, a national leader, even a military leader, one that would free the people. And they weren't able to understand that God's redemptive plan included that God himself would become the sacrifice for them, the sacrifice they needed to be holy and pure and clean in God's sight. Only in hindsight, only after the resurrection, would it eventually make sense to them what Jesus was talking about. This is why the transfiguration, Jesus' transformation on that mountaintop experience was so vital. See, Jesus met with Moses. And Moses represented to all the Jewish people the law. Moses represented the law. Moses had received the law from God, the covenant from God, the promises of God, that God would be the God of those people if those people would follow God's way. And the law was the grace that God gave that said, here's how you follow me. Here's how you avoid evil. Here's how you pursue good. Here's how we will walk forward together. So God gave Moses a law. And then Moses gave that to the people. First through the Ten Commandments and then through subsequent laws. The people were expecting a religious, political, national, military kind of leader in the Messiah. And so Moses had represented the law side of things. Elijah, who Jesus met with, represented all of the prophets, the truth of God, and all the promises of God in the coming Messiah. That the one who would be the redeemer and save and lead his people. Now Jesus had already said to his followers and to anyone else who was listening in, Long before this, he said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think that I came to get rid of what Moses did. Don't think that I came to get rid of what Elijah and the prophets did. No, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus embodied all the law. Jesus embodied the prophets. In that mountaintop meeting, Jesus was not just mingling with equals. He was showing himself to be someone greater than them. He wasn't just another great religious leader in the long lineage of Jewish religious leaders like Moses and Elijah. He was showing himself to be so much more in a category all by himself. See, Moses received the law from God, and then he gave that law to the people. Jesus is the law of God, and he is the one to be followed. He embodied all that the law meant. Elijah prophesied and gave promises. He was a holy truth teller for God. And he spoke these promises and spoke of the coming one. Jesus fulfilled all that prophecy. He is the one the prophets spoke of. And then you had the voice from heaven speaking. This is my son, the one, my only son. There is no other like him. Follow him. The the Israelites had been taught to follow the law. To listen to the law, to listen to the prophets. 
to follow what God had said and his instruction and to do as God had said. They had been taught to listen to the teachings of the prophets, both for what was to come, but for the truth they were speaking in that moment. And here you have Jesus, and God says, listen to him. He is the law. He is the way. If if God's law given through Moses was the way to follow God, Jesus claimed, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the one the prophets spoke of. He embodies all of it, so they're to listen to him. Now, we can't fully understand all that's happening on that mountaintop moment unless we understand a bit more of the Jewish history, the, the context behind this, the context of Moses, unless we understand the Exodus, because this, like so many other things in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, echo the Exodus throughout. So if you've been around church for a while, if you're familiar with the Bible, this is going to be a really brief snapshot history review. Oh, I know, man. I used to teach history, and I know what that does to people. I saw it on your faces just now. So stick with me. We're going to go through it quickly. If you are newer to the church, if you are newer to the Bible, this is just a really brief overview snapshot. All right, so thousand or so years before Jesus, 1,500, 2,000 years before Jesus shows up, the Israelites, God's people, the Jewish people, are slaves in Egypt. Right? So we kind of pick up the story. They're slaves in Egypt for a few hundred years, and God raises up Moses to send him to the Pharaoh, the leader of the Egyptians, to say, let my people go, free my people, free God's people. But Pharaoh resists. He's reluctant to let the people go. He resists it. He says, no. So God says, all right, I'm going to convince you. So to convince him, he sends plague after plague after plague after plague, 10 plagues in total, to get the Pharaoh's attention so he'll release God's people from slavery. Pharaoh does not relent except on the 10th plague. The 10th plague is the death of the firstborn. That's pretty serious. God had to get that serious to get his people free. Freedom requires death. So hold on to that. Now, God told his people, this plague is coming. Death is coming. And the only way for it to not hit you, the only way for this death plague to pass over you is for you to sacrifice a pure unblemished lamb. You sacrifice the lamb, you spread its blood on the doorposts and the gateposts of your home, stay inside, and the death angel will pass over you. Now, why did God say use a lamb? Listen, there's a whole lot of detail to that. We're just moving pretty quickly. It's another message for another time. But God said it, they obeyed, they did. And Death passed over them. So this is what the people celebrate, the Jewish people, every year at Passover. That's what they're celebrating is that God protected his people, passed them over, and saved them. This is what Jesus and his disciples were celebrating in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. The night he got arrested was the Passover, how God had passed over his people in a good way to protect them and provide for them, to provide life for them. Super meaningful event. So... After that plague, Pharaoh's own firstborn son dies. He relents briefly, lets the people go, then gets mad, follows them. God parts the Red Sea. His people cross through. The sea swallows up Pharaoh and his people. 
there they go, drowning death, not good, lots to it. They sing this song of delight. Listen, sometimes our praise songs are kind of weak. Like Moses on the other side of the water is like, let's sing of how God drowned our enemies. We don't often do that at church, but that's a song of the Bible. So it's worth looking into. Go read Exodus. Um, and like seriously, it's it's filled with great stuff like that. So then God is leading his people to the promised land, taking them to a better place. And on the way there, God provides for them again and again, providing for all of their needs. And one of those ways is he provides the law. Moses climbs up on a mountain, meets with God. God is there in beauty and majesty and gives Moses the Ten Commandments. Moses gives those Ten Commandments to the people. Then God continues to teach Moses, here are the other commands as well. Give these to the people. So Moses becomes the lawgiver for those people. So it's in the context of all of that that Jesus enters the scene over a thousand years later, after Moses. And the Jewish people are expecting another leader like Moses, a leader who will confront the political military powers of the world, who will confront the nations, especially the Romans, because the Romans had taken over the Jewish people. They had come in and conquered. They were like the dominant force in that part of the world, and they had conquered the Jews. And so the Jewish people were subservient. They were oppressed by the Romans. So they were thinking, hey, the Messiah will come. He will confront Caesar. He will confront the Romans. He will free us, and he will launch us to be the superpower of the world. So it's in that context that they're trying to figure out who is Jesus will set them free. Now, right before the mountaintop experience happens, Jesus had been talking to his followers and he asked them, who do people say I am? And they had this great conversation about all the different ways people were thinking who Jesus was. But then Jesus said, well, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? And Peter responded, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one of God. You are the son of the living God. Peter often spoke out of turn. Peter was an impulsive guy. I kind of appreciate that about him. I'm wired up a bit the same. Can be very impulsive and oftentimes incorrect on my impulses. But this time Peter nailed it. He got it right. In fact, this is known as Peter's confession of faith or the good confession. This is what we ask people to repeat when they get baptized. Because it's the answer to the question, who do you say God is? Well, I believe, who do you say Jesus is? Well, I believe Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God, my Lord, my leader, my savior, my rescuer. And that's the right answer. But immediately after that conversation, Jesus began teaching his disciples that he would suffer, that he would die, but he would come back to life. But they did not like that part of death and dying because to them, a dead Messiah is no good. They saw death as punishment from God. So there's no way that a suffering, dying Messiah can be the one they're waiting for. It just doesn't fit into their scheme. And so Jesus is teaching this, and then Peter does what Peter normally does. Peter took Jesus aside and began to reprimand, to rebuke Jesus for saying such. Listen, if you're going to rebuke somebody, if you're going to reprimand somebody, Jesus is not the one to do that to. So Peter pulls him aside and says, for heaven forbid, Lord. This will never happen to you. I won't let it. I'll stop it. I'm not going to let you die. Well-intentioned. You're my friend. You're my leader. No way am I going to let them kill you. No way am I going to let you suffer. That just isn't right. But to this, Peter then is rebuked by Jesus. 
Get away from me, Satan. Now listen, I know with friends, especially with guys, we tend to rib each other, we joke each other, take a dig on each other. But when your buddy is Jesus and he refers to you as Satan, there's just an extra level of ouch that accompanies that. And so Pete, and Jesus had Pete's attention. Jesus says, Pete, you are dangerous to me right now. You're a trap. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, but not from God's perspective. It's a lot for us to drink in from that statement. Because don't we do this all the time, church? We tend to look at things from a merely human perspective. All the assumptions that we put on the Messiah, all the expectations that we put on Jesus, well, he should work in such a way to heal, to provide, to comfort, to make me comfortable in all the ways that I think. So often we're just looking from a merely human perspective. We don't even have the ability to fully see from God's perspective. So we must approach Jesus and how he does what he does with deep humility and with an expectation that he is always faithful and he is always good, even if in the moment it doesn't feel good and we can't quite yet see his faithfulness. So we trust him. Now, this is the context for that mountaintop moment. This is all that's going on right before Jesus goes to the mountaintop with Peter, James, John. And so everything that Jesus did on that mountaintop was going back to that question, who do you say I am? All of it was to identify who Jesus is and who he is is God. See, all the miracles Jesus had performed up to that point, all the wondrous wonder-filled things he did, all the signs he did, was to point them to the fact that he is God. The, the water into wine, the feeding of thousands of people out of a lunchable, the, the raising people back to life, the healing blind people and deaf people and sick people and giving them sight and, and hearing, and I mean, on and on and on, all that Jesus had done, the healing and the provision and all of it, was to show that he is God, but he's the God who loves his people and wants to provide for them, who wants to heal them, who wants to set them free. And so God is interested in taking care of his people. And only in light of the fact that Jesus is God and the God who provides will his death and his resurrection make any sense to us. And would it make any sense to them? Because not any longer do they need a little lamb, but they now have the perfect sinless son of God as the perfect sacrifice for them. The lamb of God, the once for all forever sacrifice that Jesus did come to set us free, but not from mere political oppression, not from nations and rulers, but he came to set us free from the bondage and the slavery of sin, of shame, of death, and eternal freedom that we have. He longs not just to take us to a better place, but to bring that place in here, when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray, part of the prayer was, oh, Father God, that your kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Not just that, hey, give us a holding pattern so that we follow you and we just wait around until we get to go off to heaven with you. No, 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 no. 
He wants to usher the kingdom in here, now, in us, through us, amongst us. In fact, if you were to read Matthew's gospel, which we're in today, from beginning to end, you would see that so much of it, the theme of that gospel, is the kingdom of God here, amongst us, that it's come. In fact, I'd even encourage you, take some time this week and read Matthew's gospel. You can do that in less time than it takes to watch a normal movie. So maybe one night, that movie that you were going to watch, just wait. It'll still be there. Whatever streaming service you use, just wait another day or a week. And instead, read through the gospel. And you'll see some pretty amazing things. There's some action in the story. There's some beauty in the story. And read through and listen for the kingdom. Because the kingdom isn't just some place we get to go to later. We get a glimpse of it now as he ushers it in here in the present. Like that's what God is up to. And the only way Jesus can do all that, that he can free us and save us and usher in his kingdom is because Jesus is divine. He is God. So friend, this means you and I need to answer the same question that Jesus gave his disciples. Who do you say Jesus is? Because I say he's divine, but who do you say he is? That is the single most important question you'll ever answer in your life. And all of your eternity hinges upon your answer. Was Jesus just a good moral teacher? Was he just a really nice guy? Was he just a great person? Was he just a good example for us, a religious leader? Well, Jesus was certainly all of those things and much more, but he was not just any of them. Jesus is the sinless son of God come to sacrifice for us so that we could share eternity with him forever in the fullness of his kingdom to come. Jesus is savior. He's rescuer. But he also deserves and even demands to be leader, to be Lord. And you don't get one without the other. If you want Jesus to rescue you, you gotta follow him. You gotta follow him. Your salvation is proved true by your faithfulness to him. But the beautiful thing is, he longs to lead you. He's a good leader. He's a good father. He's a good king. The one who came to die for you on the cross will never lead you astray. His, his commands are not burdensome, and his leadership is the best thing for you. So just like the people of Jesus' time, it's so easy for us to have misinformed expectations of who Jesus is, to have incorrect assumptions about him. So we need to heed the advice from the cloud. You know, these days we get all the things from the cloud, but we're talking about the cloud that showed up that day. This is my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. Listen to him. Friends, best advice is right there. Listen to Jesus. Search the scriptures and see what they say about him. Search the scriptures and see what he says. Get to know him. Get familiar with his voice. Get familiar with how he leads, how he loves, how he lives, how he sacrificed for you. Still yourself in his presence and listen to him. When you pray, don't do all the talking, but listen to him. Spend time in his word and see if his way isn't best. And as you get to know him, you will learn that he wants to do a transforming work in your life also. See, that word for transformation that was used on the mountaintop is also used for us. When Paul, early church leader, wrote to the church at Rome in a 
wrote a letter for all Christians through all time. He used that same word. Now, it doesn't apply the same way to us. We're not going to be transformed in exactly the same way Jesus did. And certainly, contrary to those false religions and cults out there, we will not become gods. We will not become like Jesus. But as people made in the image of God, we will be transformed and we will show his radiance through us. Romans 12, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your true and proper worship. Now, when we come to the word therefore, whenever we're reading the Bible, we got to stop and we got to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? Huh. Now, maybe your translation says so. So you got to ask, so what? What's the so therefore? And so we back up usually three or four verses before that gives us context. In this case, we go just one verse before that and it tells us, for, what's the therefore, therefore? Don't you love that this starts before? I love how God does that. For everything comes from God and exists by God's power and is intended for God's glory. All glory to him forever. Amen. It's the end of a prayer at the end of chapter 11. So things come from God from his power intended for his glory. So in light of that, we go to the next verse, Romans 12. Therefore, because it's all from God and for God, for his glory and from his power, I urge you, brothers and sisters, that kind of God still shows mercy to you. So because of his mercy, because everything's for his glory and your sin has broken that relationship, but he's given you mercy, which means he's not giving you what you do deserve, which is hell. Instead, he's given you grace, which is getting what you don't deserve, which is heaven and connection with him. Because of that, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Now, this doesn't mean the sacrifice like the dead animal on the altar. No, that thing's done. It's dead. It's bleeding out. It's done, right? Nothing to do with that. A living altar... Or sorry, a living sacrifice gets to choose if it gets up on that altar. It gets to choose if it gets back down again. Gets to choose. So you have a choice. So in your choice, in your volition, in your will, offer yourself to God as a sacrifice, holy and pleasing to him. And he says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, his perfect will. The picture he gives for us here, this word transformation, the same word used when Jesus transformed, it's the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho, it's a fun word to say. It sounds like metamorphosis. You know why? Because that's where we get the word metamorphosis from. And that word means to be transformed, to change. There's a word picture that comes with this. See, it's being transformed from the ugly caterpillar, the fat, nasty caterpillar. Look at that thing. You don't even know which end is which. Listen, if you can't tell your head from, if you got issues. So, this poor thing, man. Like, you got the short end of the creation stick, buddy. God wants to transform us from the fat, nasty caterpillar life we're living and transform us into the radiant, beautiful butterfly life he has for us. This is the life God has for us. This is what he wants you to experience. But too many of us get stuck in the patterns of this world in that fat, nasty, ugly caterpillar life. So here's what I'm getting at. To be conformed or to be transformed depends on where you focus your attention and your mind. This world has ways of thinking, has patterns, as Paul says, patterns that lead to brokenness, patterns that lead us to a broken life. And it's easy to fall into those ways. You don't even have to do anything. The word conform there in that passage in Romans 12, 1 and 2, the word conform is a passive verb. It requires absolutely no effort. It's just going through life mindlessly, thoughtlessly, aimlessly, and the world will 
conform you to its patterns. It will press upon you its values, its way of doing things. You don't have to do anything. See, here's the deal. No one sets out to become overweight. No one sets out to become an addict. No one sets out to be absent from their spouse, from their kids. No one sets out to become bitter, to become angry, to be mean. No one sets out to become a workaholic with no relationships. No one sets out to wreck their life in any of those ways. No one sets out to compromise their faith. But if we don't set out to be intentional, to be transformed, it's the natural outcome. It's the slow fate of conformity of the world pressing its patterns to us. We just naturally conform to it because we're surrounded by it. But transformation requires intentionality, it's choice, requires us getting up on the altar and offering ourselves. It requires us to be intentional. So friend, be intentional or you'll end up becoming someone you never intended to be. Let me say that for you again. Be intentional with what you do with your life or you will become someone you never intended to be. Don't leave the development of your soul to chance. Don't go through life mindlessly. But be intentional about connecting with God and orienting your life around his love for you and your, your subsequent love for him. Have a daily plan. <clears throat> be intentional about your day. Have a daily plan for connecting with God. And I recommend connecting with him early in the day. Because if you don't, there's just way too much of the world that just presses in on you to conform you to its patterns. So meet with God in the morning. With that 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes, 5 minutes, hour, listen, that's not enough time because you set yourself up for hours of the world pressing in upon you. So you got to revisit that time. 10 a.m., you got to revisit what you did that morning to remind yourself of the pattern of God, not the pattern of this world. At lunchtime, you got to remind yourself of what God is up to, what he's doing, and you got to weigh that against all the things that have been coming at you. Midday, two o'clock, three o'clock, you got to remind yourself of what God has been up to. On the car ride home, remind yourself, think on that, revisit what you did in the morning. At dinner with your friends, with your family, you got to have conversation about it and talk about what you were learning that morning with God and what you're doing, not just for information, but for transformation. Before you go to bed that night, you got to give thought to it again to allow those things to shape your sleep, to to determine your dreams, to determine what God does, to give you peace at night. you got to revisit those things because the world just keeps coming at you and pressing upon you. So you got to spend that time. you got to be thoughtful and mindful of the music that you listen to, of the podcasts you're listening to, of the movies and the shows and the reels you watch, of the different things you read, the articles, the advertisements that you're bombarded with regularly. You just got to keep asking yourself throughout the day, does this thing help me draw closer to God or not? And if the answer is no, then get away from it. You got to ask yourself, what does the Bible say about this thing that I'm encountering? You got to ask yourself, am I being discipled more by the word or the world? Which one is conforming me and or transforming me? Am I being renewed or am I being corrupted by all the news of this world that comes at me? And a great way to develop the habits of renewal in your life. It's to spend time in Rooted. If you've not yet participated in Rooted, this is Barney. Yeah, who are my Rooted peeps? All right, we got a lot of you in here, right? Listen, don't take my word for it, take theirs. Jump into Rooted, which is not just a typical small group. Those small groups are awesome. If you're not in a small group, you should be. You need to be. It's the connection point for your soul. So jump into it. And it's not just a typical Bible study. The Bible studies are great. And by the way, your small group should be studying the Bible. If not, I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> like those things should go together. But, but this is a different kind of experience where you walk through the rhythms of life. It'll put these rhythms of connecting with God in your soul to help you 
meet with God throughout the day. And maybe you've gone through rooted, but you've allowed your life to get out of rhythm again. Your spiritual life is like the Elaine Bennett's dance from Seinfeld, right? If you know, you know, and no videos or pictures ever need to be shown online. If you're not, you've gone through rooted yet, it's a little fun we'll have when you kick it off. But here's the deal. We all need a spiritual metamorphosis in our life to allow the radiant light of Christ to shine through. That's why we're doing what we're doing this year. Spending 52 weeks in the pursuit of Jesus so that we can get to know him, not just to know about him, but to be transformed by him. Because we firmly believe in this and I will stake my life, I'll stake my eternity on this. When you spend time with Jesus, he will change your life. Because you see, Jesus changes everything. And that includes you and me. So you get time with Jesus and he will transform you. He'll transform you from that fat, nasty, swelled up, not sure which end is up, caterpillar life to the bright, beautiful, radiant, butterfly life that he has for you. And when you walk with Jesus for all of your days, allowing him to transform you bit by bit into his image, then all the more you get to look forward to the moment when finally we will all stand together in the unhindered, unveiled, incredible radiance of God and his glory and in the fullness of his kingdom forever. Let's pray. God, you are the transforming one. You are the good one, the holy one the author and creator of life. And you've authored our lives to be in connection with you and with one another. But God, this world has conformed us. Every single one of us here, in too many ways, we've conformed to patterns that just need broken. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would work in our lives to break us of those patterns, to transform us into the bright, beautiful, radiant image of our Savior, Jesus. Give us the courage and the conviction to be living sacrifices, to commit your word to memory, chew on it, to put it deeply in our hearts and our souls so that that would be the leading, guiding light in our day. Father, do your work in us to transform us Give us patience in the process, but give us a tenacity to hold on and to allow you to do your work, that we would see it through to completion because we know that you will complete the good work that you began in us. And Father, for any who are with us today in person or online or even watching on demand through the week who have not yet surrendered to you, God, we pray that right now in this moment, they will surrender to the one who surrendered everything for us the one who sacrificed it all for us, the one who became the sacrifice so that we could be made whole and complete and new in you, that we might be transformed because of what you surrendered for us. So God, give them the courage and the conviction to say in this moment, I surrender and I wanna know the butterfly life God has for me. I wanna know that transformed life. I I wanna be in the beauty of the life Jesus has. God, may those people reach out to us in the next steps moment. May they reach out to us in the office. May they reach out to their host even right now in this moment as you're doing a work in their soul. And we thank you for that. We thank you for what you are doing to transform us. 
So God, as your people in this next song, may we stand, may we sing with hearts abandoned, with voices loud and joyful that we sing the praise of our King, the transforming one for all the work you've done in our lives, Lord. May it be pleasing to you as we offer this worship to you and you alone. It's in Jesus we pray, amen.